As harvest continues, attention turns to the year ahead, and there's no shortage of issues in the ag business space vying for farmers' attention. Which may prove the most impactful in 2023? That's today on Field Post. DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. From the Federal Reserve's moves to raise interest rates to the war in Ukraine to droughts around the world, the challenges facing the global ag sector are many, begging the question, how does a thoughtful farm manager keep up? Today, DTN Farm Business Editor Katie Dellinger joins us to talk more about key issues that she's been focusing on this year, related in particular to the economy, and what the evolution of these challenges might mean for the year ahead. She'll discuss labor shortages on farms and in the supply chain, what experts are predicting for farm income in 2022 and beyond, and how all of this might fit into a farmer's and the sector's overall strategy. Come for the latest from the Kansas State Risk and Profit Conference, stay for updates on the future of wheat marketing, and the latest news on 2022's DTN Ag Summit, right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent, trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN Farm Business Editor Katie Dellinger has been following along as ag experts from across the industry look back on 2022 to prepare for the year to come. Katie, we have been following for a little while now updates from the Federal Reserve. Obviously, there's been a lot of focus on what some actions there mean for agriculture. So talk to us a little bit about what you heard. You know, when I visited the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City in May, one of the big topics of discussion that I thought was an interesting one to be having at that point in time was that their meeting focused on labor. That was at a point in time when everyone was looking at surging fertilizer prices and the war in Ukraine, and the Federal Reserve came out and had this entire two-day symposium on the role of labor. And when I asked Nathan Kaufman, who's the lead ag economist at the KC Fed, I asked him why they made that choice. And he really said that the input costs and the war impacts are very sort of short term in their nature. And as economists, he's looking in the five to 10 year longer term and saying that all of these costs are going up right now because of the circumstances. But when they look at what's going to be a real driving cost component in agriculture for 
a long time to come? The answer is labor. In most of rural America, the unemployment rate is 2% or below. And I know right now with the interest rate situation we're looking at and all the discussions about whether or not we're in a recession or we're going into a recession or how long will this recession be? Will it be a soft landing? It doesn't really impact the agricultural unemployment outlook picture very much because it's so tight right there out there in rural America, which most farmers and ranchers are keenly and brutally aware of as they're looking for qualified and talented help to either grow their operations or, or meet the needs that they have. Finding a qualified tractor driver is difficult these days. And if you do find one, you're paying significantly more than what you would have been paying just two years ago because of the competition in that space. And so I thought it was a really interesting conversation all around this issue of labor and employment. Talked a little bit about the H-2A program, trends on where labor is going, what the shortage of labor that's out there in rural America How can people attract talent to the types of jobs that are open and available and that are in high demand in some of these rural places? I want to dig into some of those numbers a little bit deeper. And I think harvest is a particularly important time of year when farmers are thinking about labor and just filling gaps and being able to get things done in the time that they have. Thinking about this kind of labor availability question, you mentioned H2A as one kind of aspect of maybe how folks are looking to fill that. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the limitations there and then what other kind of solutions, whether that's short-term or long-term, are people looking at to just get tractor drivers in the short-term, just get someone to haul grain in the short-term as this harvest season continues? So with H-2A, as most farmers have heard, if they haven't gone through the process themselves, it can be a very paperwork-heavy, complicated, and outdated system. It's my understanding the Department of Labor is looking to digitize or make that process a little more electronic and less reliant on paper forms, which is good because that's been one of the historical complaints. But when farmers are really looking and trying to consider whether H-2A labor is right for their operation, one of the key things about it is that H-2A is only available for seasonal workers, which automatically excludes some industries like dairy that are year round and would love to have access to some legal immigration pathways to fill their labor needs. They're not able to do that under H-2A. But some of the trends that I found really interesting was a discussion you know, about the changing nature of skill sets and location where this labor is coming from. Historically, a lot of our H-2A labor comes from Mexico and a lot of it goes into California and the Western United States for the produce industry, where they still need people to pick produce and pack produce that machinery cannot do that as effectively or without as much yield loss. So there's still some demand for that type of labor. But what a lot of those farms are doing is they're actually relocating a portion of their operations to Mexico so they can hire locally in Mexico instead of having to go through the H-2A process. And so another trend that was brought up that I found very interesting was that Mexico itself is starting to import more labor. So if we're importing labor from Mexico and Mexico is importing labor from somewhere else, they're naturally also starting to retain some of that labor back home on their farms. And so it's getting a little bit tougher to um, bring in labor from Mexico. So folks who are relying on North American labor are really reaching further into Central America into Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, some of those areas to pull on that labor. 
The other trend that has focused is a shift to South Africa. A lot of South African H-2A labor has more experience with the large machinery used on the Midwestern operations. South Africans are known for having a lot of combine and machinery tech experience, which is useful on U.S. farms. But with that sort of shifting dynamic of where people are coming from, it's someone who's maybe traditionally used H-2A labor on their farm for 20 years, might have hired someone, a father, and then their son, and now that person's son is a United States citizen and going to university. So that labor pool of how people find people is drying up. So what's happening in that space is a greater reliance on labor brokers and firms. And one of the things that's really poignant, the minimum wage for H-2A labor on average is over $16 an hour, which is higher than the minimum wage in most states in the United States. And it's more than what a lot of farmers are looking to pay, but it might be their only option to really get the type of labor they need. So there are a lot of challenges in the H-2A space ranging from wages to availability to really how it works and do the people that they're going to be hiring have the skill sets they need to get the job done. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about technology and particularly, I think one of the challenges there is as tech becomes more and more advanced and is able to do more and more, replace more and more labor, what kind of technicians or high skilled labor does it take to be able to repair or replace or manage or maintain some of that technology? When it comes down to the technology aspect, it's not just your standard tractor driver anymore. You need someone who can understand not just what the yield monitor is saying, but can help get that into the software and into the platform to analyze the data and make decisions. There's a lot of critical thinking and technological skill sets that are involved in that. And as the average age of the U.S. farmer is around 60 years old, it is something that maybe folks who are right out of college or in their early 30s are maybe a little more comfortable adopting and learning and moving in the high pace of technological growth and expansion. That generation's maybe a little bit more comfortable with it and more willing to learn and get going. And so when people are looking for someone to hire for the farm, if they can get a tractor driver, that's great. But if they can get someone who can do these other things, who can work on the computer systems, who can make sure that there's adequate firewall protections around the data, the, the systems that are in place are working properly, someone who can troubleshoot a high-tech grain bin aeration system on the fly to make sure something doesn't spoil if a fan goes out. The machinery and the repairs are just not the same. That said, welders are always going to be needed on farms. Things break and you have to be able to fix them. So those two skill sets sometimes seem a little divergent and sometimes hard to find in candidates. And so it's how do you attract some of these people with these highly valuable skill sets because technology skills are in demand everywhere. How do you attract them to rural America? How do you keep them at the farm? How do you say, you know, come to my farm in the middle of Kansas and live here and start your family here. It's hard to do. And so what some of the companies, some of the things they were doing, Cargill mentioned as they're building and retrofitting some of their meat packing plants, they're investing in communities. They are building daycare centers. They are creating free language tutoring programs to help some of their immigrant populations learn English. So there's a lot of companies 
trying to do all of those types of things. But when you look at the family farm, it's a challenge. And it's something that as this next generation of farmers maybe retires, and if they don't have a set of on-farm heirs ready to come into the business and take over and do that succession of the business, what we may see is that there's a little bit more of a farming as a service is a trend that's coming out there where perhaps co-ops will be hiring some technologically savvy folks that will go out and work for their patrons on a per hour basis is one of the solutions that I heard tossed around as a way to bridge that skills gap that's out there. Another option that really got thrown out is automation. To a certain extent, if you cannot find a person to do the job, how can you have a machine do the job? And it works differently in different industries, and it doesn't work in all industries. But one point that I found really interesting, it was made by a representative from Case IH, and he said the machines that they make can get smarter, savvier, they can do more, but there are limitations on how big they can get. You can't have a 150-row corn planter. It simply will not drive on the road. So some of these things that would allow farmers potentially to work with less labor through more automation, there's still limitations on that. And sometimes the more you automate, it just changes the skill sets needed to manage that automation. Everything from the equipment and the technology itself through the data that it produces. And so there really is a change in the skill sets needed for the farm. And I think a resounding point was that there's really not much that policymakers can do to change anything, that it really is something that companies and businesses are going to have to find creative solutions to in order to attract the type of talent that they need in rural America to fill these jobs. I think this goes beyond just the Swiss army tool that is a field hand. There's a lot of other jobs, I think, adjacent to agriculture in agribusiness, truck driving being a big one when we need to transport all of the inputs and anything that comes off the farm has to get there by truck. Talk about some of these other kind of adjacent uh, fields that I think, especially during the pandemic, we heard a lot about the trucker shortage. I think we've started to hear less about it now. I'm curious, is that because it's a problem that's resolved itself, or is that simply because the news cycle has moved on and we're on to some new topics? Well, Sarah, I think it's because the news cycle has moved on. We've since had a, a potential railroad strike that could still be a strike. They're still voting on their contracts there. But one of the things that was really highlighted in the peak pandemic time was our reliance on trucks to get goods from one point to another. Something like more than 75% of all the goods in the United States are moved by truck at some point in their life cycle from where, where they're created to where their consumer destination is. And so that's a lot of things moving over our roadways. One of the interesting facts is that there are about 10 million people in the United States that have CDL, commercial driver's licenses, but there are only about three and a half million truck drivers. And we definitely need at least 80,000 more. Some estimates I've seen are up to 120,000 truck drivers in order to have a truck driving force that is at a level to serve the demand in the country. And so we have a lot more people with CDLs that simply don't want to work as truck drivers. And we actually saw a decline in long haul truck driving, um, the number of long haul truck drivers over the pandemic, something like a 12% decline in simply four higher operators, owner operators of their own semi-trucks. And a lot of that was because they either switched to private fleets, which were paying significantly more. There was about a 
28, 30% pay boost for truckers in just the past few years because demand for them has been so high and the number of drivers has been so short. But one thing we also saw in the pandemic as American demands shifted away from services and totally towards goods was they needed um, last mile delivery drivers. They needed people to work for UPS and FedEx and the Amazon trucks to bring everything to everyone's houses because they weren't going to the big box stores to shop anymore. There's some indications maybe that's changing, but Americans really do like their online shopping and having things delivered to their door. So there's been even more demand and stress on truck drivers and getting everything from one place to another. And so when you look at agriculture, I mean, on the grain side, everything's trucked to an elevator. Everything is taken from the field by a truck. And so getting those goods where they need to go, getting those cattle from the feedlot to the slaughterhouse, they take a truck, getting that boxed beef to the store or to further processing, it goes by truck. And so filling all of those jobs is essential. But when wages are going up, 28, 30% in the span of a couple of years, it's something that really adds to those inflationary pressures that we're seeing all across the economy. And trucking is a really big part of that. And it's an issue not just for agriculture, but really for everything in the consumer goods space. Turning towards the future, I think farmers have had a challenging year in a lot of ways, though maybe there's reports of farm income being up a bit. There's lots of pressures on that from input prices and from market uncertainty and from labor challenges. What kind of comes next on the labor question, where people are looking and what maybe short-term versus long-term solutions might look like or where they might come from? I think a lot of it's still to be determined. Labor is not going to have a quick answer in any way. But one thing we can tell looking at the broader cost picture, I think I attended the Kansas State University Risk and Profit Conference in August. And one of the things I found very interesting was their discussion of net farm incomes for Kansas grain farms in 2022. And what Kansas State works with a unique kind of set of data, they use the Kansas Farm Management Association database, which is the farm financials for a good number of farms. And they can really dig into the numbers and extrapolate some interesting data. And what they found was that in 2022, the vast majority of grain farms, if not all grain farms in Kansas, should make a profit, which is surprising when you consider that two years ago, about 75% of farm income in Kansas came from government programs through the market facilitation program payments that came out of the trade war with China, and then the coronavirus food aid program, the, the CFAP payments that many farmers got. Those sort of ad hoc payments made a really big boost in farm incomes. It also is one of those things you go back to that question of inflation and some of that quote unquote stimulus as some people might call it, but these farm pay program payments um, are were large. Very little to no ad hoc or government payments in 2022. But what the Kansas, Kansas State economists really saw when they looked at the farm income statements was that a lot of Kansans actually pre-booked their fertilizer and fuel needs early. So they avoided the worst of the springtime run-ups in fertilizer costs. And that was a bit of a saving grace for net farm income projections for 2022. Now, when they look forward to 2023, the more interesting and not so good thing about it is that they're actually projecting a net loss for an average farm of about $45,000 next year because of the increased input and fuel prices. But 
that year hasn't even started. We're still far out. There's a lot that can change. As we've seen, corn and soybean prices have continued to be fairly high compared to historical norms, depending on how everything shakes out with Ukraine and Russia could change. So there's just a lot of uncertainty about the year ahead, but they're really expecting those high farm input prices to catch up with growers this year. Anything else striking that came out of the meeting in Manhattan? Any other interesting tidbits that you'll be keeping an eye on or digging into more now that you're back? You know, I I attended another meeting right on the heels of that. It was the Kansas Ag Growth Summit, which was an interesting sector-by-sector commodity group brainstorming session talking about what's going on. And I think in Kansas, there's a new manufacturing facility that's going to produce wheat protein for some of the sort of functional foods that are out there in the marketplace, the demand for protein in some of our foods. And so this is a plant that's going to try and get the protein out of wheat. And so that should be online by next spring. And they're really trying to get farmers to start growing wheat for the protein content. They may offer a premium for that for growers that do it because a lot of time it does take a little extra fertilizer in order to grow higher protein wheat. But as we saw this year, when the Kansas hard red winter wheat crop was so high in protein, they were almost getting discounted for that high protein content because they needed lower protein wheat to blend in to meet the needs of millers. So the wheat market is a little bit in flux with that. And so I'm, I'm curious to see how this demand trend towards higher protein wheats for different outlets and different demand uses goes, given you know that globally the U.S. is not a big competitor in the wheat market. Anytime a farmer has a different avenue for that crop to, to market it, I think is an interesting thing to watch. And as we wrap up here, Give us a little update on Summit. We're within a couple of months now. Any news to share on how the planning is going? I'm really excited, Sarah, about this year's Ag Summit. We've got a good lineup of people, including CHS's Senior Vice President for Customer Engagement, Gary Halverson. He's really going to speak with us about some of the different risks and uncertainty in the marketplace today, what farmers can do to sort of navigate this environment where things are just incredibly volatile. He'll also give us some insight into what CHS is doing in the energy space. And I think that's one of the things that makes CHS an interesting company is that they're not just a commodity buyer. They don't just buy grains and sell grains. They also source all the fuel for their co-op needs, and they also are into sort of the renewable diesel space. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he has to say and share. And I'm also really excited about the conversation we're going to have with former Minnesota Representative Colin Peterson and Kansas Senator Pat Roberts talking about the next farm bill and the farm bill discussion. I think there's some interesting conversations coming down that pike, especially with the Biden administration and the direction that the agriculture department looks like they want to head as far as some of these issues around sustainability. We'll also have a really good session on carbon credits with a farmer or two sharing their experience, as well as representatives from a couple of different companies and projects about how farmers can maximize or at least find a way to see if carbon credits are the right fit for their business and what the right avenue for those might be. So we're really excited about that. And I also want to remind everyone we're doing Ag Summit virtually this year. So there's no need to travel. You can enjoy and partake in all this great content from the comfort of your home. And we look forward to seeing everyone there. And remind us where to go if you are looking for more information or interested in signing up. Yep. Registration is open. It is at dtn.com slash ag summit. You can find all of the details there, including more about what's on the agenda. To read more of Katie Dellinger's reporting, visit dtnpf.com or subscribe to the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. 
This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Katie Dellinger. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.